So far in the series, we've covered D. Hawk's early years. The intention was to explore how his mindset gestated, explore his work ethic, his love of nature, of books, and his wife of 75 years and the impact she had on his life. All these ingredients and experiences, good and bad, formed the man who made an impossible dream into a lasting reality. Next, we looked at what he dubbed his 16 years of successful business failure, pivotal years, when despite his extraordinary business success, he faced staunch resistance to his unorthodox ideas. In episode two, we will cover some of Dee's fascinating philosophies, the next 16 years, the story of launching the NBC credit card program, the credit card maelstrom, how a suggestion at a meeting of card managers grew into an opportunity to rethink the whole enterprise, the year and a half forming National Bank AmeriCard Incorporated and its radical different nature. Dee Hawk, welcome back to episode two. Oh, thank you, Aiden. Well, I probably should begin now uh, after we had discussed how Maxwell Carlson had put an end to my retirement on the job by announcing the bank was going in the Bank AmeriCard business and selected a senior branch manager to head it and asked me to be his assistant. Bob and I, uh, once we decided to take the assignments, were scheduled to go immediately to California for a training session at Bank of America. So we flew down and the first day of the training session uh, left me very nonplussed. And uh, Bob was not especially thrilled with it. And I told him, Bob, I either have learned nothing about consumer credit in the last 20 years or what they're telling us makes no sense at all because all they're doing is talking about mass issuing cards with very little qualifications of customers. And I think that would be a repetition of their initial disaster when the bank got in the card business. So uh, why don't we do this? You attend the training sessions, and I know the manager of their card operation. And whatever the subject is, in the training session, I will look into how they're actually doing it in their card center and see if the two uh, bear any resemblance to one another. So for two days, that's what we did, at the end of which we discovered that the Bank America Service Corporation, which was the licensing entity, had people who had no experience in the card business. Their operating center had all the expertise, and that there was bad blood between the actual operating center and the service corporation. We were in an impasse because neither of us got much out of the training sessions. So we decided, what are we going to do? And we came up with the idea of jumping on an airplane and taking one week and flying at night, work during the day, and visit as many credit card operations across the United States as we could in a week's time. We developed a tremendous amount of a lot of ideas and had an ample opportunity to decide how we would 
crusade at the Bank of America. And I had discovered Bob as sort of a closet rebel, and therefore uh, we got along very well. And he was very receptive to the unorthodox ideas of management leadership that I had been familiar with. So we returned to Seattle, decided that we simply would ignore the manual and do things as our circumstances and ingenuity combined to suggest. And we knew that it would be impossible to get in business within 90 days if we followed the traditional uh, corporate procedures of research and meetings and plans and all kinds of complicated procedures. So uh, the first thing we did, we had heard that imprinters that the merchants would need to record sales on cards, uh, they were mechanical, what called zip-zap machines operated by hand. And uh, we, we had learned that uh, there was liable to be a shortage of them, so we immediately ordered $25,000 worth of imprinters. And the second thing we did, we knew we needed facilities. There was none in the bank or its computer centers, but there was a bank auditorium that also uh, served as a, a lunchroom where people could bring their lunches and enjoy them. So we uh, got permission from the president of the bank to have the use of the auditorium for 90 days. We canvassed the bank for every used desk we could find, used files, put the files on a small stage that was in one end of the room, uh, scattered the desks across the open area. We discovered that the ceiling of the auditorium was a false ceiling, and all the electrical and telephone conduits ran across the ceilings and down the walls. So we quickly had some electricians come, tap into the lines, and drop both electrical cord and a telephone cord from the ceiling down to each desk, which made a bizarre office, but it was extremely functional. Then immediately started to hire employees, including a cadre of presentable and articulate ladies and other people, a lot of airline stewardesses who could be put in blue, white, and gold dresses and become merchant service representatives to indoctrinate merchants. And once we had that underway, which all occurred within a week or 10 days, we had a place of operation. We were bringing in some people from the bank as staff members, hiring others from the outside. Then the problem was, how do we get 100,000 cars in a little over about six weeks? So we came up with kind of, we just put our heads together and said, we've got to give up all our ideas of how this ought to be done and find some way to just break through it in a hurry. Well, we come up with the idea which ha uh, of calling an immediate meeting of all the branch managers 
in the system throughout the area, and we would give each one of them a computer printout of all their checking and savings account and loan customers. We would ask them then to go back to their branches, hold one evening meeting of all their officers and uh, employees, call out the name of each customer, uh, and if any officer said good, that went on the list to receive a mailer offering him a credit card. If any officer said no, and knew the customer well enough to say that, then it would not be included. And if no one knew the customer well, it would put on another list, which would enable us to run credit checks on them. And this had two big advantages. It would familiarize all the banks, managers, and officers with what was going on, and it would solve our card issuance problem with qualified customers. The difficulty was most of the officers of the bank were pretty old-fashioned and conservative and uh, had a very low opinion of credit cards and not very pleased with how the bank was entering the business. So Bob came up with an ingenious solution, he and I, and we would open the meeting and he would start it by telling them that we were going in the business and he was assigned to run it and I would join him because of my credit experience. And then he would start to grumble a little about credit cards, which would immediately elicit all kinds of negative comments from the the bank's officers. And when a kind of rumbling like that, Bob would hold up his hands and say, stop, stop. He'd say, I want all of you to pull out your wallets. I want you to fan out every card, paper, or plastic in it that enables you to uh, travel on airlines or uh, buy from local merchants or buy gasoline and oil from, just get them out, and I want you to fan them out like a deck of cards and hold them over your head. Well, everybody would start to chuckle a little bit, and they'd pull out their wallets. And when uh, the arms went up in the air to hold them overhead, it was just like a sea of cards, credit cards of one kind or another. And Bob would say, all right, now you just hold your arms up and we'll discuss how irresponsible it is for people to have credit cards and how they're liable to get too far in debt and And then, of course, the room would break into laughter, and they would listen to our proposal when we said, we're going to rely entirely on your judgment as to the initial mass insurance of cards, and uh, also uh, we'll rely on your judgment of merchants in your area that you think would be interested And if you will contact them and determine if they might be interested, we'll have a service rep call on them and enroll them in the program. And so at one stroke, we solved 
the problem of initial sign-up of merchants and issuance of cards. It turned out to be quite a morale builder for all of us. Then, of course, we were faced with the realities of getting the mailing out, of getting return cards so we knew which customers wanted to get a card, and then preparing and embossing more than 100,000 cards. And one of the first things we did is order uh, embossing done and reserve space on outside embossers to do all our cards. We ran into some immediate problems. And I'll just relate a couple to show you the unorthodox management methods we used. We only had limited time on our bank's computer. The smallest were the size of a truck, a pickup truck, and they required air-conditioned rooms, and there was no online or digital data entry. There was no internet. There was no Amazon.com. There was no digital technology. There was no point-of-sale terminals. That preceded all of the things that emerged in later years in microelectronic technology. We managed to schedule one night on our bank's computer, and we had contracted with a provider of mailers to uh, provide mailers in continuous rolls that could be fed into a mechanical computer driven by punch cards and tape drives, which was the only way to do it at the time. A mechanical device that operated at high speeds. But the night we got all together with our vendor, with the card mailers in the computer center, and started to crank up his device for feeding them into the bank's printer. And it was a disaster. It turned out that the form had not been properly tested, nor the equipment to feed it, and it jammed and rolled, and mailers started to get crushed, and it, it was impossible. And we were faced then with a colossal problem. And Bob and I said, we just got to take our way through this. So we got together for just 30 minutes and thought through and uh, came back with a solution to our problem. Uh, we asked some of the people to scatter throughout the main office of the bank, the computer center, and locate all the broom handles and mop handles that they could find and remove them from their uh, mops and the broom brushes and bring them to the computer center. And we would take a, a, a roll of the mailer forms, push the broom handle through it to make an axle, and a person would get on either side and hand feed it into the imprisoner. And two other people would go to the other side uh, with broom handles and roll them up as they come out of the printing machine. And nobody organized it. We just called everybody together and said, this is what we're going to do. Now, you'll decide who'll get the broom. Just just pick out what you want to do and how you want to do it. And we'll need shifts on the broom handles because they'll be difficult and tiresome. 
gold. Well, the whole thing just instantly self-organized. No one in charge, no one directing people, people simply volunteering and uh, moving immediately to get it done. And as a result, we worked all night. And by the next morning, we were just like a band of brothers and sisters being able to have solved such a problem overnight without any planning or top-down management. And then we were faced with the problem of how to proofread the embossed plastic cards, get them into the appropriate mailer. That was a monolithic job. And we just simply didn't have people enough to do it or time enough to have them do it. So we put our heads together and came up with another totally unorthodox idea. We went to the president and chairman of the board of the bank and explained our problem and asked them if they would volunteer to come over to our card center. We had, meanwhile, located space in a building where we had our computer center to be our permanent offices. And would they come in to that semi-vacant space, which we hadn't occupied yet, and proofread and insert in the mailers a few hundred cards, maybe 500 for each one of them. And if they would do that for the next three nights, we would then go to all of the senior officers of the bank on the headquarters floor and tell them that the chairman and president were going to proofread cards and how would they like to volunteer to join them? (laughs) Well, you can imagine that uh, uh, almost to a man, they they said yes, because uh, they wouldn't be able to hold their head up with the top management if they didn't. And so once we had a commitment of a couple dozen of the senior officers, which we got within a day or two, we then offered an invitation to all branch managers. All of them were vice presidents and all their other officers, assistant vice presidents, who wanted to volunteer for those three nights to also come and participate with the senior management. Well, within uh, uh, less than a week, we were oversubscribed, and we did scheduled the proofreading for the following week. And uh, the big problem we ran into was we couldn't we couldn't accommodate all the officers who wanted to come, and they were pretty bent out of shape. But we managed to placate them by alternating days. Then the rest of our plan, though, was that we would use our junior people and clerical staff, who were the real experts on how to do this sort of work, and put them in charge of all the executives. So it would be a total reversal of of bosses and, and subordinates and employees. Then we'd have lunches and dinners brought in, 
so that uh, people could not only uh, proofread their cards, they could have a nice meal and get acquainted with one another. Well, in three days, we had over 100,000 cards in the mail to our prospective customers. It had another incredible effect. The morale of the bank just skyrocketed. It was almost like a party. So by using those kind of techniques, we launched an operation within the 90-day period that over the next year developed into a thriving, wonderful operation. And meanwhile, Bob and I became almost brothers. Then after a year, Bob suddenly announced to me that he had decided to take a position elsewhere in the bank and the personnel director would like to talk to me. And I was amazed because I knew he loved the job and the operation was an immense success. But I had to accept his decision, went to the personnel director who then asked me if I'd like to become a full vice president and take over uh, management of the bank card operation. I love the way, Dee, through a common purpose and the right conditions that you created here, you allowed the natural ingenuity of humans to come forth, to emerge. And this is one of your beautiful concepts of K-Order, that order emerges from the chaos when people are surrounded together in good energy and working towards a common purpose, which is the real thing that comes out of all your work and, and your deep fascination and love of nature as well, that this idea, nature does this all the time, order comes from chaos. And this area in the bank that you had created was called the zoo, which had a certain amount of chaos, but the order consistently came. And there's a term which is called post-traumatic growth. We've heard of post-traumatic stress disorder, but post-traumatic growth is when you go through a traumatic period or a crisis, which this essentially was when the machines broke down, but you pull through and everybody works together and that energy and that, br that brotherhood and that bonding that happens as a result is post-traumatic growth. And it's absolutely essential, I think, in any major endeavor. But moving on D, to the maelstrom that I mentioned in the intro, when the country became essentially what you call a house of cards as hundreds of banks rushed into the credit card business. At the time, stories of banking madness were legendary. And there's a great story in Life magazine, which draws on Greek legend, depicting banks as Icarus flying to the sun on wings of plastic, one a Bank America card and the other a master charge card. And below them was a Red Sea labeled losses. And the magazine predicted banks would soon plunge down, wings melted and drawn into the sea of red ink. I'd love if you shared how, at this point, your life veered in a totally different direction. Well, that describes it quite well. I would only add one of my fundamental beliefs that I've never changed, uh, that I developed over the years. And that is that the the most abundant resource 
in the world today and most underutilized resource and frequently abused resource is human ingenuity. It's the cheapest and most abundant and underutilized. And that the source of that abuse is our archaic notions of command and control, mechanized industrial age organizations. But moving on, while our program was very sound and successful and profitable, what had happened is that four California banks had joined together to form Master Charge, a competing program. And that had stimulated Bank of America to offer franchises. And our bank was one of the first six that were franchised. But during the time that we developed our program and the year or two that Bob, the year Bob run it, the next year that I run it, turned into a, all I can describe this as bank card frenzy, where hundreds and hundreds of banks, and then more than a thousand entered the card business, mass issued cards with catastrophic problems. Cards were issued to dogs, to children, to people who were in jail. People should never have had one. You have to realize that there was no electronic transfer of anything in those days. All of the drafts had to be produced by hand, a four-part draft in a zip-zop machine. The merchant then had to call, make, make a telephone call to the bank that uh, had signed them, who put them on hold and then had to call the bank that issued the card long distance get an authorization for the transaction, if it was over $50, then relay that back to the merchant signing back, who relayed it to the merchant, who then uh, completed the sale. Well, it took no time for merchants to figure out that they better get an authorization before they had ever made the sale and list some fictitious sum in order to have an authorization and not keep the customer waiting. And that, of course, uh, ate up all the credit lines of customers for sales that would never be consummated. And then when they tried to use their card, it would be rejected. When the drafts were deposited at the banks, the merchant signing bank then had to draw a clearing draft through the Federal Reserve to get paid for, for that batch from the issuing bank. But the issuing bank didn't have the cards yet, so they had to put their put it in a suspense ledger. Then the merchant bank was supposed to key punch those cards and send them through the mail to the issuing banks, who would then data capture them and remove the suspense item from the ledger. Well, with that many banks pouring in, it just turned into an operating disaster. There was hundreds of thousands of dollars of unfenced drafts. There were batches of, by the hundreds lost in the mails. The banks that were receiving them had trouble reconciling ledgers. 
And so the industry was faced with catastrophic losses that gave rise to that Life magazine article. Well, in the midst of this mess, about a year after I had taken over our CARDS program, the Bank of America Service Corporation, who didn't have any idea what to do about it, called a meeting of all the plan managers from all their licensee banks, which were then over 100 in the United States, into a meeting to discuss three or four of the more critical operating and authorization and draft clearing problems. And I, of course, attended the meeting. The meeting within the first day just turned into chaos. The plan managers were shouting accusations against B of A's management of it. The B of A was blaming the, the card managers Various card managers were blaming other managers. The meeting the first day literally collapsed. And the the representatives from Bank of America did their best to placate it, but it was impossible. At the end of the day, before the meeting adjourned, the Bank of America officials made this ask about eight of the plan managers, of which I was one to form a committee, and that's what they proposed, and they said they would pick the names and announce the committee the next day, and then turn over a solution to these problems to the committee. I thought that was an impossible suggestion, a waste of time. I knew these people from the service corps, so I got them to one side, and I said, look, I'd be happy to serve on the committee if you want me to. But by the time that committee could ever come up with a solution to these two or three problems, there would be 20 more. And if there's going to be a committee of that kind, I would think its sole charge would be to come up with some means of addressing all the problems determining how extensive they were and in what order they should be approached. They liked the idea, but they insisted that I present it to the plan managers because they were afraid if they presented it, it wouldn't have any credibility. And if I presented it as one of the plan managers, it would have more credibility and I suspect, though they wouldn't admit it, that they were afraid of going back to their bank, telling them what they had done for fear that they would be subject to criticism by their uh, superior officers. So this, having me present it, sort of took them off the hook. And I argued that I just didn't want to do it. That wasn't my appropriate, but they insisted. So I finally agreed that I would do so. So the next morning, the plan managers were all kind of astonished to see me on the stage. And the Bank of America there, and uh, they announced that I had proposed something to them that 
they wanted me to present to the whole audience. So I took some time and and did my best to present it. And it was roughly noon by the time that was all done. And we adjourned for lunch, and that gave all the plan managers a little time to themselves to think about it and discuss it with other people. The only way I can phrase it is when we reassembled right after lunch, the audience in the way of all large groups like that, when they're presented with a suggestion that doesn't bind them to anything, doesn't cost them any money, and sort of allows them to get out of the meeting and go home, all said, okay, that's fine, let's do that. Well, the meeting, which was to have lasted two days, adjourned immediately after lunch. I met with the eight people that I had suggested to the bank that were from diverse banks at key points throughout the country. And I knew a little bit about them. The bank asked them if they'd serve, and they all would. And they appointed them to the committee along with myself. Well, after the meeting adjourned, the committee of eight met to figure out what to do next. And uh, one of the members of the committee was a sort of laconic, slow-spoken Southerner. And the minute we met, he said, well, I don't know about the rest of you people, but as far as I'm concerned, this is Dee's damn fool idea, and therefore he ought to be the chairman, unless some of you feel to the contrary. And he looked around, everybody just started nodding and laughing at his remarks. And so uh, there I was. I'd gone to the meeting with no idea this would transpire. But I now was sitting as charge of a committee whose job was to try to figure out some organized way to deal with all this. I was very concerned about it. And I had brought one of my key officers with me to the meeting. And on the way home on the airplane, I had told the committee, let's all think about this, and I'll give it some real thought, and let's meet again in 30 days and see if we can, at our next meeting, come up with, with some kind of solution. So on the airplane on the way home, my officer and I pulled out an airline map, and I started to divide the country into eight regions, uh, with each region having one member of this committee operating within that region, which would give us some real diversity. Then came up with a very convoluted concept of organizational structure and developed that during the next 30 days in anticipation of our meeting. The concept called for each of those members of this committee appointed by B of A to return to their area and call in plan managers of all the banks in their region and ask them to form a series of four committees assistance committee, a credit committee, an operations committee, and a marketing committee. 
and they would put the key person with the expertise on each of these subcommittees on that. Those committees would then elect a chairman, and the chairman of the four committees would become an executive committee over that region who would appoint a chairman, and that chairman would be the member of the National Committee Bank America did form. At our next meeting, I got all of them to agree on the plan and go back and organize these regional committees. This whole structure had only two advantages. It gave every card issuing bank participation and a voice, and it could allow organized information about their view of the problems in their area and what should be done about them to cascade up through this series of committees into the committee B of A had formed, which came to be called the National Executive Committee of the whole system. And we made certain that uh, a man named Jack Dillon, who was the actual operating head of the Bank of America's program, was on the National Executive Committee, and that his key people would be on the regional committees in uh, the region I was responsible for, which was the Pacific Northwest in California, west of the Rocky Mountains. So that was one advantage of the committee. The other advantage of that committee is that over the next six to 12 months, it allowed organized information about the extent of the problems and the operating losses and the rough order of priority that all the banks thought the difficulties should be addressed. So that is essentially what took up the next year. When I uh, came up with the idea of these committees, before they had been formed, I knew that I had discussed it with the president of the bank, with Maxwell Carlson. And my intent was just to do a bit of civic duty. But I knew I had to talk to him because this could be much more than I had anticipated and would need his consent. So I asked for a meeting with him and uh, met with him and I explained to him what had happened and how I had become involved as chairman of the committee and that I had no idea what this would all lead to, but I didn't feel that I could go on with it unless I had a situation that was above reproach, that wasn't me representing my bank's interests. And I would need a lot of time. He was a wonderful old gentleman, and he always one of the best listeners I've ever heard. And when I explained all this, he said, well, young man, I think I can understand that. And I can understand the chaos you described that's occurring elsewhere in the credit card business. What do you think will happen to our program should the uh, system collapse? Or is that a real possibility? 
And I said, Mr. Carlson, it is a real possibility, and it's rapidly becoming a probability. And if it happens, we would have no choice but to either withdraw all our cards from customers at enormous expense and loss and loss of credibility or attempt to convert it to a private program, which would also be extremely difficult, if not impossible. I can't know for sure, but I think it would injure our program and the bank materially. He says, I see. I think I understand, little man. Well, how much of your time do you think this would take? And I said, again, Mr. Colson, I have no way of knowing. We're doing something that's never been done before in the banking industry. But I think it would be very demanding. But I really can't answer your question. And he said, I see, I see, young man. Well, how about your uh, key officers in the card center? Are they capable of running it without you? And I said, well, I, I, I think I've got excellent people. I think they might need authority and support, but I think, yes, between the two or three key officers, I don't think they would have any problem running it. In fact, I'm in many ways just getting in their way. And he said, I think I understand. I think you understand. And he tipped back in his chair after we'd had this roughly hour-long discussion, looked very thoughtfully, and then he just completely astonished me. He said, well, young man, sometimes we just have to be good citizens. So uh, arrange things at the center as you think fit, and you will need a salary and a title and a position from which to do this work. So you'll continue as a vice president of the bank. You'll get your full salary and benefits, but you're free to go wherever you need to go and do whatever you need to do. He had a little habit of finishing all meetings by saying, did the meeting serve your purpose? After telling me that and just astonishing me, he said, did the meeting serve your purpose? I gambled a little bit, I suppose, but I had to be honest with him. And I said, well, not quite, Mr. Carlson. And he said, well, then tell me about it. Set back to listen. I said, well, I uh, think anyone who does this kind of job has to be above reproach. And therefore, I would have to treat the National Bank of Commerce, the same way all the other banks were treated. So I wouldn't be able to tell you or anyone in the bank what the committees were recommending until all of the banks could be told, and then the bank would be told as just one of the members. See, I see. I think I understand, young man. I said, and also, Mr. Carlson, I'm going to need some legal advice, and I have no money at all to pay for it. The committee structure is all voluntary. Everyone is paying their own expenses, so we have no budget or 
no anticipation of having any that would allow us to employ legal advice as we proceed. And he said, I understand, young man. He said, excuse me a moment. He picked up the telephone, dialed a number, and explained to somebody what I was doing. Then I realized he had called the managing partner in the bank's outside law firm. And he said, I want you to give Mr. Hawk all the assistance he needs from a legal standpoint. And you're to tell me nothing about it or anyone else in the bank. It's to be entirely confidential between you and Mr. Hawk. And if for any reason the banks collectively are unable to pay your bill, it will be taken care of by the National Bank of Commerce. And he looked back at me and said, did the meeting serve your purpose? (laughs) Well, it not only served my purpose, which I told him with enormous thanks, but I had never been treated that way in my entire life. And I left that meeting dedicated to the idea that I would never do anything to let him down, that I would do my utmost to validate his confidence in me. The, your work at this point was unpaid. It was thankless work. So much for retirement on the job, right? So that's one thing. And the other thing was how you trusted your gut. You wanted to go to a business where the people were good people. And one of those great people was Max Carlson. And you were drawn to him in serendipity. You forced that serendipity yourself. You made those conditions happen. But for everybody in life, there's always a Max Carlson. And we have to be so thankful for them. And you give him massive credit in the book because you say without Max Carlson, Visa would have never happened. Yes. The way I always put it in the book, that if Maxwell Carlson had been a lesser human being, Visa would have never come into being. He didn't tell me what to do. He didn't help me in any way in the problem I was faced with, but he certainly, to the nth degree, created the conditions by which I could use my ingenuity and ability to try to solve the problems. Before we continue with the story and the narrative, it would be great to share some of the habits and some of the philosophies that you had formed along your journey, particularly from your love of nature, etc. And then we can continue with the story arc. Over the years, and going back to my youth, I developed the habit of rising at five each morning to have two or three quiet hours for study, reading, and writing. I avoided any carousing or late-night activities, and uh, usually in bed and sound asleep by nine. Um, I also developed the habit in debating of recording on three to five, uh, three inch by five inch cards, all things of importance or interest that I thought or read and started filing it by subject matter and source. So by the time I uh, was involved in uh, the collapsing visa system, uh, I had thousands of them to refer to. 
And I also developed the habit of working long hours into the night if necessary, but never taking home school work or other work that I was involved in uh, nights or on weekends. Those days and hours belonged for family, gardening, backpacking, reading, writing, things I love to do. As we go, we'll be talking about a couple of words that may not be that familiar to most people. That is the uh, word chaotic, a word I coined and defined. I define chaotic as the behavior of any self-organizing, self-governing, adaptive, non-linear, complex organism, organization, community, or system, whether it's physical, biological, or social, the behavior of which harmoniously blends characteristics of both chaos and order. And the second definition of it is the behavior of a self-organizing entity the behavior of which exhibits observable patterns and probabilities that are not governed or explained by its constituent parts. And the third definition is characteristic of the fundamental organizing principles of the universe, evolution, and nature. That's a little complex, but it is the diametrical opposite of the command and control and top-down organizations. And the other word that I've grown to love is educe, E-D-U-C-E. It's an English word that's fallen into disuse. And to educe means to bring out or develop from latent or potential existence. It is, of course, the opposite of induce or command. Induce meaning to persuade or cause others to behave or do as we wish. But again, educe is to bring out or develop from the latent or potential possibilities or existence. And when you consider that and apply it to people, it implies that everything they could imagine or do, their ingenuity, is something you need to bring out as an essential part of how the world should work. You truly believe the system was broken, D, and you found yourself a unique opportunity to reinvent that system using these habits we just spoke of. Talk about the right person in the right place at the right time. As you said, understanding events and influencing the future requires mastering four ways of looking at things, as they were, as they are, as they might become, and as they ought to be. It was here that you dissected the very meaning of words such as bank, money, bank card, digital, and your goal became to create the world's premier system for the exchange of value. And several convictions slowly began to emerge. And these convictions were enormously exciting to you, and they kept you engaged in this odyssey that you had embarked upon. At that point, I called upon something I've always done that I call peeling the onion. 
to remove layer after layer of what I thought I knew to try to find the essence of what was really going on. Often, like an onion, what you find is that the essence of it is everywhere. But I started asking myself questions. Did I really understand what banks were? Did I really understand other words that are so common to us that we never question them? I came to the realization a bank was any institution for the custody, loan, and exchange of money. That's all it did. But that didn't really help me. I had asked myself, well, what is money? And I started thinking of all the forms it has taken to try and find out what is really of value. After a lot of soul searching and study, I came to realize that money is nothing but whatever is customarily used as a means of exchange and a measure of equivalent value. And so with those two definitions, I had to look at bank card. What is it? Bank credit card is merely banker's jargon. All payment instruments, regardless of kind, when they're presented to a merchant, create a debit. It was called credit card merely because the bank allowed the customer to make the offsetting credit after the transaction instead of before. Then I started looking, breaking money apart into its constituent parts. What was the actual thing being exchanged? What form did it take? The necessity for having a guarantor of it. Who was that? The manipulator or the person who moved and exchanged and completed a transaction between a willing buyer and a willing seller. What I came to realize that coin was debased there was no longer any real uh, gold or silver in it. There was nothing on it other than alphanumeric data expressed with the symbol, a money symbol of, of a single nation. I looked at coin. I looked at checks or currency, uh, and that was nothing but alphanumeric data on paper instead of metal, and it was exchanged and moved by individuals or road, rail, and air, mechanistic ways. Then I started thinking, what would happen if money actually became digital and electronic, and where the customer might be, and what his needs were? And the customer's needs were to be able to exchange what he had in bank accounts or treasury bills or real estate, be able to exchange some of that wherever he was 24 hours a day and seven days a week. And as airlines were emerging, where the customer was could be any point 
on earth. All of this started to combine in my mind and the thought that money could become nothing but arranged electrons and photons that would move around the, the, the earth at the speed of light at minuscule cost was a profound understanding because it would destroy banking monopolies and result in only new ways of exchanging value that would meet the customer's needs. As I was working on trying to clean up the colossal mess the cards had become, I came to the realization that any organization that could manipulate, transport, and offer such an ideal instrument uh, would have a market. Every exchange of value in the world it would simply beggar the imagination. It would be in the trillions and trillions of dollars. By peeling the onion on word after word and coming to that realization and the realization that bank cards might be changed and instead of having the necessary alphanumeric data of Boston plastic, that in this colossal mess I had to to try to clean up, lie an incredible opportunity. If we could clean up the mess and start on an evolutionary path with the card that would lead to full electronic capacity, we would have this enormous opportunity. But then emerged the critical problem. I searched everything I could and could not find and became convinced that no existing form of organization could do it. No single bank could do it. No combination could without some kind of organization. No corporation could. Even no new nation state could. And I could not find any existing form of organization that might be able to realize this. So it really became a compelling dream that somehow we could create the world's premier device for the exchange of value. One of the other things you did, Dee, was peel the onion on the term organization as well. And here you looked at nature, remembering that you had a deep love and fascination with nature. And you asked some of the other committee members if anything in the world was possible, if there was no constraints, whatever, what would be the nature of an ideal organization in order to create the world's premier system for the exchange of value? And I love how you articulated an ideal organization. One of the many examples I quote from the book here is, without deeply held, commonly shared purpose that gives meaning to their lives, without deeply held, commonly shared ethical values and beliefs about conduct in pursuit of that purpose that all may trust and rely upon, communities steadily disintegrate and organizations progressively become instruments of tyranny. And in any change role, be it innovation or organizational transformation, the innovator, which was you in this case, rarely has any power or command and control cards to play. So therefore, using your word, 
they must educe rather than induce. And this is how you allowed Visa to emerge. You framed it with values and principles, and this was the secret to your success. Yes, Aidan. Well, in the narrative, I think we left off where I had asked those three people to isolate themselves and consider that single question and try to look at it with a completely blank and open mind. And they, of course, insisted that I had to go with them because it was my suggestion and they may not know how to approach it. We left our work behind and isolated ourselves in a small, uh, very nice hotel and began our pursuit of what would be an ideal organization. And for three days, we argued and talked and really got nowhere because we were having trouble getting out of our mind the organizations that we had been raised in. Often things come to me as I'm half asleep. I came to the realization that we had to work in an entirely different way. So I went in the fourth day and I said, let's stop talking about the organization itself. Let's see if we can agree on principles upon which it would be based. And uh, everybody thought that would, would perhaps help. So we began an intense discussion. And at the end of the day, arrived at principles. And I had always maintained and conveyed to them that uh, making money was not a purpose. A purpose is something that can be expressed in one sentence to which uh, individuals could honestly say that if we, in the plural, could achieve that, my life, in the singular, would have meaning. And I thought that creating the world's premier system for the exchange of value met that criteria. And by principle, I meant, again, simple statements of how we intended to conduct ourselves in pursuit of the purpose. That means you, you can't avoid the subject of ethics and equity and so on. Well, at the end of that week-long session, we developed 15 or 16 principles, and I'll give you a couple of the examples. We would have to deal with power and decisions and control. And we said, what if ownership was in the form of irrevocable rights of participation rather than stock? That is, rights that could not be rated traded, bought, or sold, but only acquired by application and acceptance in the corporation. Another was, what if it were self-organizing with participants having the right to self-organize at any time, for any reason, at any scale, and yet maintaining their irrevocable rights of participation in governance at any greater scale. And as I read these, you recognize they emulate nature and the way nature and the universe has been organizing things from the beginning of time. 
A third was, what if power and function were distributed with no power vested in or function performed by any part that could reasonably be exercised by any more peripheral part? Another one, what if governance was distributive with no individual institution or combination of either or both particularly management, able to dominate deliberations or control decisions at any scale. Another, what if it could seamlessly blend cooperation and competition with all parties free to compete in unique, independent ways, yet able to avoid self-interest and cooperate when necessary in the greater good of the whole? And another example, what if it were infinitely malleable, yet extremely durable, with all parts capable of constant self-generated modification of form or function without sacrificing its essential purpose, nature, or embodied principles, thus releasing human ingenuity and the human spirit? So we, we ended up with about a dozen or possibly 14 basic principles that all of us could agree would be the principles we would love to see in any organization that attempted to create the world's premier system for the exchange of value. So, well, after the committee had come to that, we took it to the National Executive Committee of the Licensee Committees. They, too, agreed that those principles were exactly what they would love to see happen. And uh, we then sent it to all committees nationwide and got a huge majority saying, yes, did I believe at that time it was possible? No, I really didn't. And neither did they. Nobody believed it was possible, but they were solidly behind it. And I used another definition that I had been given by another party years before, which said the word consensus. And we always think that means everyone has to agree. But consensus is really the agreement of the people that care, acquiescence of those who don't particularly care. So uh, using those things was very helpful. But there we were. We know what we, we wanted to do. We had our purpose. We had our principles. But now came the immense task of trying to think our way through what kind of organization could embody or come close to embodying all those principles. And the principles were difficult because some of them were almost the exact opposite of others. So it took judgment as to how you would combine those seemingly antithetical principles. We then embarked with the help of lawyers and countless people from all persuasions and types of work on a year-long effort to see if it was possible to imagine such a corporation. 
Dee, you mentioned their organizations and you do a brilliant job when you cut, as you do in the book, to you and Monkey Mind, where you go deep in your own thinking about different topics throughout the book. And here you delve deep and you peel the onion on organizations. And there's a quote I pulled that I absolutely love. The truth is a corporation, or for that matter, any organization has no reality save in the mind. It is nothing but a mental construct to which people are drawn in pursuit of common purpose, a conceptual embodiment of a very old, very powerful idea called community. All organizations can be no more and no less than the moving force of the mind, heart and spirit of people without which all assets, so much inert material, chemical or vegetable matter, by the very law of entropy, steadily decaying to a stable state. I love that because you articulate here an ideal organization. I'd love, Dee, if you expanded on this and shared with us what you found the ideal organization was. Thank you, Aidan. Well, as you just said, I think the problem we're faced with in society arises from the pervasive habit as perceiving an institution of having tangible physical reality, such as a building, a tree, or a machine. And I use the following way of getting people to understand this. I would ask them, uh, if I was in a group, to uh, fix in their mind an organization that they were familiar with, and not its physical manifestation, such as its name, bylaws, logo, employees, building, services, but the entity itself. And to concentrate on that organization, they think they know so well. And then I would ask, have you seen it? What color is it? And they would be completely at a loss. I would ask then, well, then you must have smelled it from time to time. Describe its odor. No, they agree you couldn't do that. Well, then surely you tasted it. Is it sweet or sour, tart or blend? Well, you can't taste it. Well, you must have touched it often. Is it hot or cold, hard or soft? No, you can't do that. Well, then I would point out that you can't perceive an institution with any of your senses. Without doubt, you've heard it sound, make it sound, and I couldn't do it. Then I would point out that if you can't perceive an organization with any of your senses, does it have any reality at all? Perhaps it simply doesn't exist. But that explanation defies common sense. The truth is that a corporation or any organization anywhere has no reality save in your mind. It is nothing but an idea, a mental construct of relationships between people and other entities. Constitutions, certificates of incorporation, bylaws, regulations, and all other organizing and institutional documents are nothing but a description of relationships which someone has imagined. People are born into or forced to join 
are otherwise involved in organizations would require them to submit to others by compulsion or economic necessity. The importance of that understanding simply can't be overestimated. Since the organizations exist only in the mind, it means that any concept of individual relationships we can imagine can be reduced to bylaws, constitutions, or chartered, registered, and given the sanction of law. Healthy organizations are a mental construct of relationships to which people are drawn by hope vision, values, and meaning, along with the liberty to cooperatively pursue them. They educe behavior, and educe behavior is inherently constructive. Unhealthy organizations are no less a mental construct of religion, but one in which people are compelled by accident of birth, necessity, or force. Unhealthy organizations compel or induce behavior, and that kind of behavior is inherently destructive. When an organization loses its shared visions and principles, its sense of community, its meaning and values, it's in the process of decay and dissolution, even though it may linger with the outward appearance of success for some time. Businesses as well as nations, races, and tribes die out or become irrelevant, not when they're defeated or suppressed, but when they lose their shared vision, principles, meaning, and value. To the direct degree that clarity of shared purpose and principles and strength and belief in them exists, constructive, harmonious behavior can be adduced. To the direct degree they do not exist, behavior is inevitably compelled. And that it's really not complicated. The alternative to the shared belief in beneficent principle and purpose is tyranny. And tyranny, whether it's petty or grand, whether it's commercial, political, or social, is invariably destructive. And that is increasingly the situation in today's societies, even in the most liberal of those we call democratic. The ideal organization had emerged for you using all those principles and all those values and all those habits that you had formed. And then you brought other people on the journey with you. At this stage, never before had banks voluntarily surrendered autonomy to any organization. It may be that they had it taken from them by government or regulatory authorities, but they never voluntarily surrendered. Let's share how you managed this and the year of effort that you had to undergo to bring everybody on that journey with you. Well, with all these realizations in my mind, and with the agreement of all elements of the voluntary committee structure, having uh, come into agreement with them, in my search for an organization and realization that no, none of them could do it, I added up the resources of all the banks in the world, and it dwarfed the assets of any given nation, transcend all customs, all cultures, 
all different legal systems, all of the things that we're accustomed to, that such an amalgamation of banks into a uh, transcendental organization that could embrace all those differences and be energized by them and not destroyed by compulsion, that we might have the key. So after uh, many, many meetings and the involvement of a great variety of people from different disciplines, uh, we eventually created an organization unlike any that had ever existed. I'll tell you a little about it. Ownership would not be in the form of stock or anything that could be raided, traded, bought, or sold. That ownership would be in the form of irrevocable rights to participate in the new organization and all of the services that might evolve. That would amount to and would require some kind of organizational documents that embraced all the principles that could be legally recorded and that would transcend all of the problems. Charter would be recorded in the state of Delaware for a for-profit, non-stock membership organization which uh, would embrace those principles. And it would have its own bylaws and operating regulations, but every member, every financial institution, any in the world that wanted to participate would acquire a position as a owner member of this organization by a simple one-paragraph agreement, which read that they had received a copy of the bylaws, the operating regulations, and agreed to hereafter operate in accordance with them as they now existed or were hereafter modified. And thus that became really a massive civil contract between all the parties, uh, which was identical to the common. Therefore, every member would have equal rights and equal opportunities. And it uh, completely eliminated the need for contracts or differing agreements. Uh, We then created a board elected by members that would meet our principles. We decided that if we took over this system from Bank of America, the existing banks would be paying a service fee of one quarter of 1% of their volume in the system be the initial position of the new organization would require that quarter of a percent payment. Now, since all of the revenue to the corporation would be based upon a sales volume of products and services using the service mark. We decided that we would 
create voting rights in accordance with the same system, the volume they were transacting, their customers were transacting. Therefore, we would give every member of this organization one vote for every $10,000 of volume they created using the corporation service marks and system of revenue or what they were paying that was directly related to their voting rights. And every year they would, or every quarter, they would submit an operating statement to the new organization revealing their volume and a check for their service fee and that these uh, votes would be cumulative. That is, every year as their volume of business grew, their voting rights would grow. And then we had to deal with dividends. If this organization created value and owned buildings and computer systems and software technology and produced profit outside of the member group, how would it be distributed? What would be their rights? And then we realized we could do that on the same system that the service fees paid by each bank would be accumulated over a period of time so that they would know and we would know the total service fee they had paid. And we then would take any dividend and it would be distributed back to the owner members in uh, direct relationship of the total service fees they had paid to the total service fees paid by all the banks in the system. Therefore, any uh, distribution of benefits would not occur to the core organization except to the extent they needed them for further uh, systems and product development, uh, but would be uh, in the event of any dissolution or distribution of the corporation would come back to them on a perfectly equitable system. Uh, and then uh, the question of, of, of how to use those voting rights, we incorporated in it that the voting rights could be used to elect directors to a board uh, that would be designed uh, to be perfectly equitable, uh, and they could also use it to vote on any action of the corporation that required a worldwide vote of the members. So uh, we managed to surmount all of the restraints and the corporation had one other value. Since it didn't engage in any business, it didn't issue cards, it didn't make loans, it didn't take deposits, it didn't have any stock or other items. This massive civil contract between the parties was enforceable in every legal system in the world. 
Therefore, the core organization would not be subject to any regulation or law of any jurisdiction in the world. It would have complete freedom to release the ingenuity of its employees and its management. Now, the board itself would be divided up since we would divide the United States. And I should inject here that we had made a conscious decision to attempt to do this only in the United States because trying to do it worldwide would just be impossible. And that if we could make something like this work in the United States, then there might be an opportunity to extend it globally. But it would be designed in the beginning to operate globally. Well, it took an enormous amount of effort to create this and get it through all the voluntary committees. And it met every test of the purpose and principles that we had elicited. That faced us with the question of how in the world we would bring this organization into being because it would require nearly 3,000 banks in the United States to surrender their existing licenses and substitute membership in an organization totally unlike everything that they were accustomed to. But we had conditioned all of the 200 card-issuing banks, which were the principal part of the system. The others were banks that were agents of theirs. We've conditioned them at the uh, center manager's operating level to agree to this, but we knew that they simply would have no authority to commit their bank. So we were faced with another almost insurmountable problem. 